Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Hey, just to get our minds going this morning, uh, I'm going to show some slogans from famous companies, and I want you to shout out the company that this slogan represents. I promise that this has a purpose. So here's the first one. Just do it. Nike, good. How about there are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. The ultimate driving machine is BMW. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Yeah, you all know that one. How about around this part? Like a good neighbor? And then last but not least, the few, the proud, the Marines. In a catchy way, all of those slogans are pointing to the purpose or the mission of those various companies or organizations. And this morning, as we continue our series in the life of Christ, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we come to what I consider to be kind of the central verse in all of Luke's Gospel, the key verse. And like those advertising slogans, this verse is going to point us to something very important about who Jesus is and his purpose and mission for coming. And even though it's the last verse in our section this morning, I'm going to start with it uh, because this verse is really going to help us to understand the story that we're going to read together. So would you read Jesus' mission statement, so to speak, out loud with me from Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which is printed on your notes there. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That verse, maybe more than any other verse, expresses the heart and the purpose and the desire and the mission of Jesus. If you're following on your notes there, Jesus' whole mission, his whole purpose was to seek and save the lost. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series in Luke, which we've been doing for well over a year now, we have seen this again and again in the encounters that Jesus has with people. In fact, the very first time Jesus gets up to speak, he declares, that's my purpose. I'm here to declare the good news to people who need to hear it, the good news about the kingdom of God. And as we've, we've gone through this series, we've seen some people receive that good news. They receive the new life. They are lost, but they are found. But other people, when they are confronted with the good news of Jesus, they choose to reject it. Now this morning, we come to one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible about a person receiving this good news of salvation in Christ. Someone who was lost, but has been found. It is the story of Zacchaeus. Now, I know if you grew up in the church, you are probably familiar with this story from your Sunday school days and the felt boards and that annoying song that goes with it, which I'm not going to sing, but Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wasn't he? (laughs) My hope is, however, I've been praying about this, that if you grew up in the church, if you've heard this story a million times, that you won't let your familiarity with it keep you from seeing it with fresh eyes this morning because I want to say to you this is such a powerful and fun story about how salvation works. 
we're really just going to do two things together this morning. We're going to look at this character Zacchaeus and Jesus' encounter with him, and then we're going to talk about how his story is a much bigger story of how the process of salvation works in an individual's life. So before we open up this text, can we once again just bow our heads and pray? And again, I want to be careful. We don't do this out of habit. We don't do this out of routine. We do this because we recognize it's easy to sit in these seats and not receive what God would have us receive unless we open up our hearts to him. So let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. What a gift. What a gift that we can gather every Sunday and open it and know that you will speak fresh truth to us, truth and grace. And so, Lord, we have a responsibility. We have a part in that. I have a responsibility to prepare, to teach, but every person in this room has their responsibility as well, which is to set aside distractions, to allow you to be present in their hearts and in their minds. So we do that right now. We anticipate excitedly that you actually want to teach us today something about yourself and something about us. So we look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been doing this the last several weeks, and we need to do it again this week. Before I actually get to the story, can I just remind you of where we are in the Gospel of Luke? We're going to do a little context. Jesus, for a while now, has been on his way to Jerusalem. Literally, he's on the road to Jerusalem. Last week, he came to the outskirts of the town of Jericho, where he healed that blind man. Two weeks ago, in chapter 18 of Luke, Jesus encountered this man called the rich young ruler. Now, if you were here or If you weren't here, it doesn't really matter because that story is key for us understanding this story this morning. In the story of the rich young ruler, this rich guy comes up to Jesus and basically asks him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's just another way of asking, what must I do to be saved? And as we saw, or if you're familiar with that story, this rich man, he was a good guy. He had kept all of the commandments since his youth. He was very religious. He followed all of the rules, but Jesus saw into his heart. And he saw that the one thing that was going to keep him from experiencing the kingdom of God was his wealth. And so Jesus challenges him to give away your wealth and give it all to the poor. Then you'll find what you're really looking for. The ruler could not do that. He couldn't do it. He walks away, and it leads to Jesus making this statement in Luke 18, 24 and 25. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If you were here, you remember the disciples are absolutely stunned by this statement. If this guy can't enter the kingdom of God, because you remember, rich people were considered the blessed blessed people in that day, then who can? In fact, that's what they asked Jesus in the very next verse. Who then can be saved? And then Jesus responds with this famous saying at the end of it, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, why am I talking about a story that we've already talked about? Because it is super important Because it is no accident at all that the story of Zacchaeus follows the story of the rich, young ruler. These stories are meant to be seen and read together. In fact, I'm going to use a literary term here. If you're following on your notes there, Zacchaeus serves as a foil 
F-O-I-L, to the rich young ruler. Do you know what a foil is? Even if you don't think you know what it is, I think you might know what it is. In movies and books, a foil is a character who is placed there as a contrast with another character in order to highlight a particular quality of the main character. So let me give you a couple examples of foils. In Les Miserables, which is a famous book and became a famous musical, you have Javert as a foil to Jean Valjean. What do do I mean here? Well, Javert is a police officer and he's bent on revenge and justice. Jean Valjean is a criminal and he has experienced God's grace and that flows out in his life. You see how they contrast to show us something. How about a more recent example in Beauty and the Beast? You have Gaston and you have the beast. Gaston is the foil to the beast and he's an example of someone whose heart continues to get harder. Whereas the beast who starts with a hard heart, his heart becomes softened. I'm sharing those examples because I'm telling you, Luke is a genius. Jesus is a genius. He has these encounters and he wants us to see these two characters and the qualities that they have with each other. We have another rich man in Zacchaeus. And the question the disciples asked, right, is who then can be saved if not this rich man? And we're going to see in the story of Zacchaeus, if you're following on your notes, Zacchaeus answers the disciples' question, who then can be saved? Can a rich man walk through the eye of a needle? We shall see. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very Rich. Now, we've talked about tax collectors in the past when Jesus calls Levi or Matthew to become one of his disciples. He was a tax collector, but long story short, to finance their great world empire, the Romans would levy heavy taxes on the nations that were under their control. And during this time, Israel was under Roman rule. And so even though the Jews opposed these taxes, they were forced to pay them. But what made it so bad? is that their own countrymen, Jewish people, actually became the tax collectors. They became traders. They were lured so much by the idea that they could be rich, that they took these positions. So as we've talked about, if you're on your notes, tax collectors were among the most hated people in Israel. They were Jews by birth, but they chose to work for the enemy. They were considered traitors. They were considered frauds. The way they got rich, friends, is they charged more than the taxes that were actually due. And then they cut their, their top, they, they cut their stuff off the top, their money off the top. And they became wealthy. We're told that Matthew was a tax collector. Here we're told that Zacchaeus is what? The chief tax collector. Now, you want to talk about someone who's hated. People believe there maybe were three chief tax collectors in all of Israel, so that would have made Zacchaeus one of the most wealthy and one of the most hated men in this entire country. In the people's minds of this day, is he a likely candidate for the kingdom of God? He was a lost soul. He'd sold his soul, right? He was a lost soul if there ever was one. But what was Jesus' mission? The Son of Man has come to do what? Seek and save the lost. Look at verse 3. 
He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Now, I got to admit to you, this verse was really difficult for me to understand. So I asked Pastor Jeff to explain it to me. I asked Jeff's permission to use that, and he loved it. So don't, with you people with the gift of mercy, I don't want to get any mean notes after this, all right? He was happy about that. In all seriousness, you have to read that verse and go like, why is Luke mentioning Zacchaeus' height here? There's got to be a reason. Well, here's what I think. Being so short, don't you think Zacchaeus was trying to get to the front of the crowd? And what do you think the crowd was doing? Oh, sorry, I didn't see you down there, Zacchaeus. Oh, is that your foot? Sorry about that. You think they're going to let one of the most hated men in all of Israel see this sight, see this parade coming down their street? Absolutely not. But Zacchaeus is undeterred. He wants to see Jesus. So we read these incredible words in verse 4, which are on your notes there. Would you read them out loud with me? So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now we've talked about this before in the past too. For a man in this eastern culture to run was considered totally undignified, especially a wealthy government official like Zacchaeus. And yet, we're told here, Zacchaeus runs down the street like a little boy following a parade. And it gets worse. He actually climbs a tree. The tree that Luke mentions here has large leaves and low branches. Some people wonder if he picked that tree because he's trying to hide from people. He doesn't want to be seen. But regardless, people had to have seen this. And if you're following on your notes, Zacchaeus risks embarrassment and ridicule to see Jesus. He risks embarrassment and ridicule to see Jesus. Now, my natural question is, why would he do that? And we don't know the answer to that for certain. I've used my imagination a little bit looking at this story this week. I wonder, do you think Zacchaeus knew Levi? Do you think perhaps he had heard of Matthew's conversion, becoming a disciple of Jesus? Maybe Matthew had been praying for Zacchaeus. Maybe Matthew had even spoken to Zacchaeus before. Or perhaps, like so many people who have found wealth unsatisfying as the thing that doesn't actually fill the void in my life that I think it will, Zacchaeus knew he needed something more. Or perhaps he was just tired of being kicked around. Perhaps he was lonely. I can't answer those questions, but what we can do is rejoice. We can rejoice that a seeking Savior will always find a lost sinner who is looking for a new beginning. Amen? That's what Jesus does because the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Now that leads to the key question we're asking this morning, which is how can I be saved? How is a person saved? How do we get Jesus' salvation flowing through our lives? That's the most important question you could ask ever. If that's Jesus' mission, if it's his purpose to seek and save the lost, well, how do I get that? In what follows, we have the answer to that question. Zacchaeus' story is one of the best examples in the whole Bible of this process we call salvation. Zacchaeus is a man of enormous wealth. According to the world, he has it all, but he is totally lost. He's totally lost. Well, good news. Jesus came. 
to find people who are lost. But three things need to happen in a person's life in order to receive that salvation. Listen, every one of our stories of coming to Christ, if you've come to Christ, if you're a Christian, it's gonna be different, right? But I guarantee you these three ingredients are at play in your salvation. Let's talk about them. The first one is found in verse five. Would you read that out loud with me on your notes there? It says, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. The first thing we notice about the process of salvation, if you're following, is that Jesus pursues us and calls us by name. This is true for every person ever who has come to Christ. Jesus pursues you and calls you by name. Luke's entire gospel is driven by this idea. The entire Bible is driven by this idea. When Adam and Eve sinned, they try to hide from God. But he pursues them. He calls them by name. And that story is repeated again and again and again and again. Understand, salvation is always first God's initiative with you, with us. We see it here in story form when Jesus stops. He spots Zacchaeus hidden up in the branches. He calls him by name. Can you imagine being Zacchaeus? I'm trying to hide from people. Zacchaeus. How does he know my name? And he tells him to hurry down. And I love this part because it's necessary for me to come to your house today. That is how salvation works. While Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, it is Jesus who initiates his salvation. If you're following, salvation is always sheer grace. We sang a lot about that this morning. Do we believe it? Salvation is always sheer grace in God's initiative. Sheer grace in God's initiative. One of my all-time favorite authors and scholars is a man by the name of John Stott. In describing how he became a Christian, he once said this, My faith is due not to my parents or teachers or even to my own decisions, but to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I love that, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. The hound of heaven. That's referring to a famous poem. That's how God is. He pursues us relentlessly. He calls us by name. Our family just finished reading through the book of Jonah together. You want to talk about a God is, who is relentless in his pursuit of lost people. Jonah is as lost as it gets. He's a prophet for crying out loud, and he's running away from God. Does God give up on him, though? He pursues him relentlessly. How about the Ninevites, some of the most evil people in that day? Part of the reason Jonah's running away is because he knows that God is a God who relentlessly pursues people. And calls them by name. And sure enough, that's what happens. And Jonah's not too happy about it. Friends, to be lost simply means we don't know where we are or how to get to where we want to go. That's it. The Bible says that is the state of every person who was ever born. But Jesus, check it out. Why did he come? To seek and save the lost. 
Please don't miss this. Your salvation is not first your action or your work. It was God's initiative. It was God's seeking you. He pursued you and called you by name. He must stay with you. He must come to your house today. He became God in the flesh after all, didn't he? Salvation is first and foremost God's divine work. Jesus says it this way in John 4, 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. Now listen, how do you know when God is pursuing you? How do you know when he's calling you by name? I think one of the main ways is you have this restless heart. There's an unsatisfaction. Even though you've reached what you think the world says is going to bring you satisfaction, there's still something missing. It's what Pascal calls the God-shaped vacuum in every person's heart. And I think that's what's going on here with Zacchaeus. He had it all, and yet he was totally unhappy and unsatisfied. That's the hound of heaven. That is the God who relentlessly pursues his people. Listen, don't think that this meeting was an accident. This had been ordained since the beginning of time. See Ephesians 1. That's how salvation works. But we do have a part. We do have a part to play in our salvation. And that's really the second thing we learn in this text about the process. If you're following, we must respond to Jesus' invitation with faith and repentance. We must respond to Jesus' invitation with faith and repentance. Look how this works, starting in verse 6. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. Isn't that great? I wish I could just stop there. Look at the very next verse. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Have we seen this before? Like every page in the Gospel of Luke? Once again, Jesus is reaching out to people who the world has discarded as hopeless. The crowd is not happy about it, but there is one person who is happy. His name is Zacchaeus. Now the question that Jesus has been asking us again and again in this section of Luke is, do you believe that what I'm offering you is worth more than whatever you have built your life around here on earth? Right? Again and again in the last five or six weeks, do you believe that what I'm offering you is worth more than whatever you have built your life around here on earth? In the case of the rich young ruler, the answer was... No, you're not worth it. And he walked away. In the case of Zacchaeus, the answer is yes. Absolutely, 100% yes. I was thinking this week how many barriers Zacchaeus had to overcome to get to this point. There are similar barriers, in my opinion, that we have to overcome in order to come to faith in Christ still today. The first barrier is that Zacchaeus had to climb a tree. Like, what does that have to do with us? Well, friends, the biggest barrier between us and salvation is pride. The biggest barrier to us receiving Christ by faith is pride. Listen, when Zacchaeus got up in that tree, he left his pride behind. 
He left his pride behind. Friends, even in our informal culture, can you imagine if there was a parade and we're all down there and the mayor gets up in the tree to watch the parade, what would we think? We'd laugh. Now, triple that in this culture, if not more. It was embarrassing. It's crazy for Zacchaeus, this wealthy government official, to lower himself in such a way that he would get up in a tree. He lost his dignity in order to see Jesus. Is the same for us still today? Do we still need to humble ourselves and climb the tree in order to come to faith in Christ? Listen, this takes shape in different cultures in different ways throughout the centuries in different ways, but listen, you cannot have the salvation of Jesus flowing through your life until you swallow that pride, admit you're lost, and climb up that tree. Nobody wants to admit they're lost. I mean, if you've ever driven with a man, we don't want to admit we're lost. We will drive into eternity until we, before we stop at a gas station and ask somebody for help, right? I'm joking about that, but I actually have been wondering, is that the reason that there's more women who have received Christ than men? Is it harder for us to swallow our pride and climb the tree? Perhaps there is. The world says the cross of Christ is foolishness. Have you experienced that? If not, you will. It's foolishness to say I need something outside of myself to save me. St. Augustine put it this way. I put it up on the screen for you to follow because he uses kind of older language and understand he's writing a letter uh, to one of his friends. Let Zacchaeus grasp the sycamore tree and let the humble person climb the cross. That is little enough merely to climb it. We must not be ashamed of the cross of Christ, but we must fix it on our foreheads where the seat of shame is. Above where all our blushes show is the place we must firmly fix that for which we should never blush. As for you, again, he's writing to someone, I rather think you make fun of the sycamore, and yet that is what has enabled me to see Jesus. You make fun of the sycamore because you are just a person, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The first barrier we must break to come to Christ is our pride. But there's another barrier that Zacchaeus had to break here. Who kept him from seeing Jesus? The crowd. And then we see in their response in verse 7, what kind of a crowd was this? They were a very self-righteous, moral, legalistic, probably religious crowd. They looked down at people like Zacchaeus and they're displeased. That's a great word choice there. That Jesus would choose to spend time with this notorious, what's the word? Sinner. Friends, if our pride is the first barrier to embracing the gospel, the second barrier that people face today, and I wish I didn't have to say this, to come to Christ, are moralistic, self-righteous, religious people. Some people just can't get past the crowd. Tim Keller says it this way, there are so many people in this world like this who use the word sinner in an exclusive, abusive, oppressive way. They beat people up with it and they look down at everyone else who doesn't have their beliefs and practices. There are so many people in churches like this and there's so much evidence of this in the history of the church and there are so many people professing to be Christians like this that so many people just have given up on Christianity because of it. They can't get past the crowd. Now, I want to be careful here. There is a difference 
between standing for truth and being self-righteous, right? It's confusing today. When I stand for truth today, does that mean I'm being self-righteous? No, I'm being self-righteous when I say that person could never experience the grace of God. Those people are too far gone to ever experience the grace of God. There's a huge difference there. But how many of us know people who won't come to the church because of their experience with the church with a capital C? They can't get over how self-righteous Christians can sometimes be. But you know what the story teaches us? That doesn't stop Zacchaeus. How did Zacchaeus get over this barrier? He found a way to look at Jesus apart from the crowd. If you are here this morning and you are skeptical of Jesus, you've had a bad experience of the church, can I just encourage you, do what Zacchaeus did, which is find out who Jesus really is. Find out who Jesus really is. I'm going to give you a hint. None of us are perfect people. And we're going to sully his name sometimes. I'm going to sully Jesus' name sometimes. But don't let my inconsistencies keep you from seeking to see Jesus. You see, when you do that, you know what you're going to discover? The same thing we've discovered as we've been going through Luke for over a year now. It's on every single page. You know who else was turned off by religious, moralistic, self-righteous people? Every page of Luke, who's turned off by that? Jesus. Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has no place for people who say, Oh, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. I'm better than him. I do good works. I go to church. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Oh, God, thank you that I'm not like these evildoers and Robert, blah, blah, blah. That's self-righteousness. The Christian, the true Christian understands, I am Zacchaeus. Apart from the grace of God in my life, I am lost. But thanks be to God, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost that includes me. I read an amazing story this week of a, a tour in Iceland. They, got, they went to a volcano, uh, this big volcano in Iceland, and they let the people on the tour bus, there were 50 of them, go and explore uh, this volcano area, but they were supposed to come back at a specific time. When they came back, one of the people was missing, they noticed. And so they called the police. Uh, they sor- they uh, formed a search party of the 50 people, and for 12 hours, they went looking for this missing woman until the police finally called it off because they realized that the woman was a part of the search party. How did that happen? Well, she had changed her clothes as they had gone off on the tour, so when she came back, nobody recognized her as the woman. Now, I love that story because people may be religious and part of the church. They may even be on the bus, they think. They may be even doing good things like searching for lost people, but they don't realize that they're the ones that need to be found. You see, you can be just as lost in the tree as you can be in the pew. But the Son of Man has come. Why? To seek and save the lost. I want to say to you, this story is just as much a warning to the crowd as it is about Zacchaeus. But please hear me, no one, not Zacchaeus, 
not the person in the crowd, is so far lost to receive the glorious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're falling on your nose to receive it, we must swallow our pride and overcome the crowd. To receive that salvation, we must swallow our pride and overcome the crowd. Fortunately, that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. Let's read verse 8 out loud on our notes together. It says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. I want you to notice two things. I've already mentioned this. This is all part of number two here. First, Zacchaeus responds in faith. How does he describe Jesus there? Shout it out to me. Does he call him teacher? Does he call him great prophet? No. What does he say? That is no small thing. To call Jesus Lord means he is rearranging his entire life. Who was the Lord of Zacchaeus' life before this? He was. And now he's recognizing, no, you are Lord. You are king. You are the one who has sought me out and saved me. In faith, Zacchaeus rearranges the order of his life. He publicly declares, Jesus is Lord. By the way, That is a necessary part of salvation, is it? Publicly declaring Jesus is Lord. We do that often in our church during baptisms. When we ask a person, are you willing to let Jesus become the Lord of your life this day on? That's just not a question. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I guess so. That's basically asking you, are you willing to turn your life upside down? To give him the throne. To not make him just a Sunday morning thing, but an everyday thing. To say, he's going to own it all. He is Lord of my life. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But notice, secondly, though, that true faith is always accompanied by repentance. As Brian mentioned last week, repentance just means turning away from something that may be drawing me away from God and turning back towards God. In this case, we see very clear evidence of what repentance looks like, don't we? We have Zacchaeus, who was living a life of greed and fraud, turning to a life of generosity and restitution. Restitution just means he made things right with the people he had stolen from. Unlike the rich young ruler who loved his wealth more than Jesus, Zacchaeus' heart had been changed. And because his heart has changed, we can see the third step of salvation in this story as well, which is, if you're on your notes, salvation always results in outward change. I wish I had said inward and outward change. So can you write that? It always results in change. How about that? When a person truly experiences God's grace, it will change them but make sure you get the order of grace correct. Because that is what can lead us right back to self-righteousness. Do you see what the order is here? Does Zacchaeus say, I'm going to stop cheating people. And Jesus says, okay, good. Now I'm going to come to your house today. No, Jesus says, I must come to your house before Zacchaeus has even repented. In fact, look at verse 9. It's so clear. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. In my Bible, shown himself is circled, because I don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. It's easy to read that and go, well, is it because 
He started giving half to the poor, and he made it right with other people by doing four times more than he needed to do. Is that why he was saved? No. It showed outwardly what had happened inwardly in Zacchaeus's life. If you're following, the changes in Zacchaeus's life are the result of God's grace. It's not what earned him God's grace. When Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of everything to the poor, I'm going to pay back everybody whom I've cheated four times the amount, it does not say in our text, Jesus saying, now salvation can finally come to this house. You're finally doing the good things I want you to do in order to receive salvation. No, he says, this is a sign that your heart has truly been changed. What was once lost has now been found. Salvation first, then change, but I'll say it again, there will be change. There will be change. It will change the way you think about and the way you spend money. As we see with Zacchaeus here, as we've seen the last five weeks. Are you tired of Jesus talking about money? It's like every week he's talking about money. Why? Because he knows that's the number one thing that's going to compete with our heart. But when we experience salvation, I'm going to look at my money differently. It will no longer be Lord. He will be Lord. It will change other things as well. It will change my thought life. It will change my sex life. It will change my family life. It will change the jobs I take, the jobs I turn down. It will change the way I treat my body, what I put in my body, how I spend my time. It will change the way I treat people who have wronged me. And check this out. It will also change, hopefully, the way I treat those who I've been wronged by. Just like it changed Zacchaeus. Everything's going to be affected when Jesus becomes Lord. Are there going to be bumps along the way? Absolutely. We're not called to perfectionism. That's why we call it a spiritual journey, but saving faith, I'm just trying to show us, it's more than praying a prayer. It's more than having an emotional experience at a worship gathering. Saving faith always results in a changed life. If you don't believe me, read the book of James. Read 1 John. Look at Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. By their fruit you will recognize them. Recognize who? My disciples. How much did Zacchaeus' life actually change? I wish we had more about him. Don't you in the Bible? What happened after this? Well, actually, we do know. You see, there was a bishop called Clement who lived in the second century. And he actually, you can still read some of his writings. He actually writes a little bit about Zacchaeus and what happened to him. Are you interested to find out what happened to Zacchaeus? Did he bear fruit in keeping with repentance? It says, Zacchaeus continued faithfully in the growth and nurture of the Lord and served Christ to the end of his life with distinction, being elevated ultimately, listen to this, to the role of bishop of Caesarea. This little man who climbed a tree to see Jesus walked away from his life of deception and greed and fraud and became a spiritual leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. As we close, let me remind you that the rich young ruler who was satisfied with his own good works, I'd kept all these commandments since my youth, and he didn't want to give up what he owned, he could not be saved unless something happened later in his life. You see, he depended on his possessions more than he depended on God, but was Zacchaeus, Jesus accomplished the impossible. He sought out a wealthy sinner 
and he called them to repentance. So the good news is camels can walk through the eyes of needles. Amen? Is God seeking you this morning? Maybe you're in the tree. Maybe you're in the crowd. Is he saying to you, come out of that tree. I'm pursuing you, and you know it. That restlessness, that hole in your heart, that's me. I'm calling you by name right now. Or maybe you've heard this message this morning, and you realize I'm in the crowd. I need to check my attitude of self-righteousness. Jesus has grace for you as well. Come out of that crowd. I want to dine with you. What an invitation that is. I must come to your house. I want to do life with you. I'm seeking you. You see, the whole reason I came is to seek and save people just like you. So if you're following on your notes as we close, the question is, will I come to and be changed by the one who is seeking me? If you've been a part of Cherry Hills, you know that at the end of every time we open up God's word, we're, we're trying to leave some space, an opportunity for us to be still and know that he is God. We don't have a lot of time for silence and reflection in our culture today. It's so fast, so busy. But we don't want to just gather information You got to hold notes of information right now. That's good. But God always wants to use information for transformation. And so part of the reason we leave this space is to allow our hearts to be searched by God. And so here's what I'll just ask of you before I pray. Where do you see yourself in this story? Are you up in that tree still? Is Jesus looking at you? Is he calling you down? What's keeping you? What's keeping you from seeing him, from coming to him? Maybe you're in that crowd and you just need some time of serious confession. I have been looking at people in a way that is not right. Or maybe you are like Zacchaeus and you just want to spend a minute rejoicing in the fact that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost just like us. So let's take this time to do that.